All right. Well, good morning. We're so glad you guys are here with us today in person or if you're watching online or watching uh, this later. And so it's been an exciting weekend for us around here at Journey. Yesterday was our Fall Fest. And if you weren't there, you missed out. We had a few thousand people uh, show up. It was a ton of fun. We love doing it. We're doing it again next year, uh, same, same time, uh, late September. And so we're excited to be able to do that again. And so we are so glad and so grateful for our volunteers and our staff. And Casey did an amazing job at Fall Fest. And so hopefully if you didn't make it last, last night, you will make it next year for Fall Fest. There, I don't know if there's any other announcements because there was a video, but now there's not a video. And anything I need to announce? No? Okay. So just uh, download the app, figure it out, and we'll see you if stuff <laughs> comes up. All right. So uh, we are in this mountain series. we got two more weeks this week and next week. And uh, we started this series with a story that most of us are familiar with. It's the story of Moses. And the story kind of begins in Exodus where God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And God speaks to Moses and he starts with this idea. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. I've seen their suffering and I'm coming down to rescue them. Now, what's fascinating when we see the Bible is the Bible is not detached from time and space. It's taking place within human history. It's taking place within the reality of the things going on. And you need to remember that. These are not stories from some distant land. These are stories that are taking place within human history as we're understanding who we are and we're also understanding who God is. God works within human history. Now, earlier on in the story, before we even get to the Moses story, there's another important story that takes place that many of us are familiar with and we've talked about before, and you've probably heard of this person before, and it's the story of Abraham. Now, Abraham is a very significant person in human history. In fact, the three major world religions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all kind of can trace their roots back to this story of this man. And in the 12th chapter of, of the Bible, of Genesis, we see the story of Abraham start to unfold. And it unfolds when God actually speaks to Abraham and Abraham hears from God, which is huge. Because in their culture, in their world at that time, in the primitive world, their understanding where the gods were detached from this place. The gods did not really seem to care much about what happened here other than what they could get out of it. They were somewhere else. And so for God to kind of step into the human story, to step into this was a big deal. So the Hebrew people tell this story about a man named Abraham and of a God who interacts with humans in their space and time, this divine voice. Now the story starts out in a certain region in the land of the Samaritans, specifically in Mesopotamia in the land of Ur. And this is kind of where this story starts to unfold. And God tells Abraham that he's going to bless all people to the ends of the earth through what he's going to do that starts with this story of Abraham. Now, in order for this story to take place, God tells Abraham that he has to leave his father's household, which is this idea of him leaving behind everything that he's known. Because in their world, the way it worked is you learned your family trade, you learned everything from your father, you learned how to live, you learned what to do, you learned your beliefs, your gods, your idols, they all came from your father. They all came from what you had learned before, and now God is interacting with Abraham and inviting him into something new. He also tells Abraham that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the skies and that all of the world will be blessed because of him. Now, this is one of the early promises of the Bible that we know are true because there's very few places in the world that you can go today that do not know the name Abraham. 
I mean, this is a story that starts with this one guy that is taken off. Now, Abraham trusts in this divine voice, and he believes that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. The problem is he doesn't have any descendants yet. He's an old man. Him and his wife, they have not had kids yet, but he continues to trust this divine voice. And there's some mishaps that we're going to talk about another time that kind of take place. But eventually, he is given a son named Isaac. And Isaac's going to become a very prominent figure in the story that we see unfold. But something interesting happens very early on in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22 of the book of Genesis, uh, God asked Abraham to do something that, that seems so out of line and out of character with what we've come to know about God. And in Genesis chapter 22, God asked Abraham to offer his child, his firstborn son, to sacrifice him. And Abraham listens. And so him and Isaac, they go on this adventure to Mount Moriah, where they're going to build an altar for Abraham to sacrifice his son. This is the part of the story where I think we have to pause for a second. And we have to ask the question that I think is okay to ask from time to time. Like, what? Like, like, this is the part of the story where if it's me and I'm Abraham, and I understand there's cultural differences, and this is a very primitive understanding of the gods and all that. We'll get into that for a second. But at the part of the story where God asks me to sacrifice my son, I mean, this is the part where it goes, well, this is a little messed up, isn't it? And you got to understand that the part of this comes, as we talked about before, of their understanding of the way that the gods interact with us. And it's this understanding of how the gods and the god characters in these stories and these ancient stories, not just the story that comes out of Israel, but the other gods that existed and how they relate to us as human beings. And the idea is that we need to keep the gods' favor. We need to keep offering things to them. We need to show our devotion to them so that they understand how grateful we are for everything that we've been given. And in the primitive world, they had gods for everything. We've talked about this before. They had gods for everything you can think of. Hunting gods, crop gods, water gods, the sun gods. I mean, gods of everything. And in order to appease these gods, you have to keep offering things to them so that they know that you're grateful. And the way you offer things is you offer them up. Because their understanding, as we still kind of view today when we think about God, we think of God being up in the sky somewhere with his beard and all that stuff. And so God must be up. And so in order to offer this, we have to build something somewhere so we can offer it up to them. We talked about this in the first week that even like Greek mythology and Roman mythology, you have these ideas of the gods living up on the mountains. And so they would take a pile of rocks and they would place it upon some high place and they called it an altar. And people, when we see this very early on, even in the biblical story, people would take a portion of their crops or a portion of their hunt or a portion of their livestock or a portion of what they had, and they would take it to this altar and they would burn it. They would sacrifice it to the gods to make sure the gods knew that everything was good and that we were grateful for everything that they'd given us. And so it's this offering system. And early on in the process, there's a lot of confusion about how much that we are offering and where we offer and how we're supposed to do this. And so early on, not just in, in Israel, but we see this across many kind of faith groups and with many gods, 
priests start to arise. And priests become the experts in what you need to do in order to appease the gods. And so the priests come along and they tell you, well, this is what you need to give. How, which, who's your god? Okay, well, if you want this to happen for you, you need to give this much and you need to give it here and you need to do this thing. And they kind of came at an in-between, a go-between, between the gods and man. So there's this system that starts, not just in Israel's stories, but in most of the early stories we see, where these human beings, they're trying to keep the God's favor. And so they have to keep offering things. But as we've talked about before, the altar had a major flaw, and it even has a major flaw in the story of Israel. And here's the flaw. So so let's say that that one year your life is good, and your kids are healthy, and your wife is healthy, and your crops are healthy, and you had a good hunt that year, and and you think about it, well, I offered this much last year. If I want to keep God or the gods happy, then I have to offer more, because you don't want to offer less, because if you offer less, then all of a sudden it seems like you're not grateful anymore. And so what happens is there becomes this system that almost creates anxiety in people, Because they never know where they stand with the gods, and they feel like they have to keep offering more and more and more. And so eventually the system, it it kind of builds, and it, it takes place, and it gets to the point where eventually with some of the early faith systems that we see, it's not just that the gods just want your crops and your livestock and a portion of your hunt. Like, in order to appease the gods, you have to give more of yourself. You have to cut yourself. We see early stories of human beings where they would mutilate themselves. And eventually we get to the point where even that isn't enough to appease some of these gods. So eventually we get to the place where there becomes human sacrifice. Because what more can we give than if we give actually ourselves? And then eventually we see with like Molech and some of these early god systems, we see that it's not just enough to sacrifice some slave or to sacrifice somebody You have to give something that's really valuable. And so you have to sacrifice your own children. And it becomes like this morbid kind of system of of how we understand, how we relate to the gods. It becomes such common practice. And so there becomes this anxiety. Am I doing enough? Am I giving enough? And and what do I have to give? Now, now, when we hear this idea of, of child sacrifice or sacrificing human beings, like, it, it becomes this kind of stopping point where we're like, well, obviously that was messed up. And obviously that's not something, we, we've grown past that. And that's a primitive understanding of the world. My question is, is it really? Because although most of us in this room, we would not think of actually placing our child on an altar and burning them to sacrifice to the gods... I know plenty of people who are willing to sacrifice their families for the new gods, the gods of success, the gods of notoriety, the gods of a bigger house, and a bigger lot, nicer cars. And so maybe we still have these gods that we feel like we have to appease, but we've just modernized the system and we call these gods new names. So we look at this story where we're really, it's kind of the old, isn't it? Where we're still trying to appease these things and these systems in our life. And so in this story, we have God and he speaks to Abraham and he says, you need to go and you need to sacrifice your son. And, and what's fascinating is the language that's used in Genesis 22. It's going to come up on the screen, I think, hopefully. And it says this, it says, then God said, take your son. Your only son, whom you love. 
Now, what's fascinating about this is we see a little foreshadowing of something that's going to come. But this is the first mention in the Bible of love. And it's about a father who's going to give his son. And you go to the region of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now hold on to that last line. Killing your son whom you love. And again, we have to ask the question, why doesn't Abraham push back on this? I would. Like, like God, really, you want me to, to kill my son, the son that you promised, the son that you said the descendants of the earth are going to come from, are going to be blessed from? Because again, their understanding was the gods can ask anything of you at any point in time. So we see in this story that Abraham and Isaac, they, they make their way to the mountain that God shows them. They're part of Mount Moriah. And we see them walk up the mountain, and, and it's like this kind of morbid story, if you've ever studied it before, that, that along the way, Isaac keeps going to his dad and being like, hey, so where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, well, God will provide. I mean, this kid's going to need a lot of therapy, isn't he, you know? And he gets to the top of the mountain, and he builds the altar with his son. And he starts to put his son on the altar. And this is the part of the story where everything changes. And a voice that represents God, it stops Abraham, and it says, don't do this. In fact, it says, you know, don't, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't sacrifice your son. In fact, there's actually a ram over there in the thicket, and you and your son, you go get that ram, and you sacrifice that. And the Bible tells us that Abraham is considered good. And we're like, good, because he was willing to kill his son? Like, seems a little weird, right? But what we see in this story is that this is not a story necessarily about what Abraham is willing to do, but it kind of shifts, and it becomes a story about what God's willing to do. By the way, this is not a story that we teach our kids. We don't flannel graph this for them in kids' church, you know. <laughs> now, why is he okay with all of this? Because he wants God to know how far he's willing to go. But this is a different story. This is a story not about a God. Remember, earlier on, God invites Abraham to leave everything from his father's household, including his understanding of God. And this is going to be a story about a God not who asks as much of us, but who is willing to provide for us. It's completely and absolutely unexpected. This story would have been groundbreaking and revolutionary as the early Hebrews would start to share this story. Not about a God who keeps demanding and demanding and demanding, but a God who's actually willing to step into our story and provide. And then it gets to the point where we have the Moses story, right? Where Think about this, that God hears the cries of his people and he responds and he comes to rescue them. A God who steps down into our world and our mess and our ugliness, and a God who's willing to provide, to listen, and to rescue. 
Now, the rest of the Old Testament, it, it gets a little funky, and we've talked about some of the stories before, but we see this book called Leviticus, and Leviticus is this interesting story, and what's fascinating is when you read Leviticus, like in our world, in our context, in our culture, we would think this book is very primitive, because basically the story of Leviticus, is, it's a story of all of these things you have to do. You have to kill this, and you have to kill it this way, and you have to sacrifice this in order to be connected to God and to be at peace with God, and we say, well, well that seems so primitive, and that seems so barbaric, but you have to remember Back in their day and age, you never knew where you stood with the gods. And now all of a sudden, this manual comes by, and there's even this line in the book of Leviticus where God speaks to his people, and he says, come near, do this. Come near. You don't have to worry about where you stand. If you do this, if you come near, God is inviting them into relationship. God is inviting them into understanding of how he relates to us. There's even in the book of Leviticus, there's this, this one offering in which you would take a sacrifice and you would take a portion of the animal and you would sacrifice it to God, but then the majority of the animal you actually kept. And what you would do is you would take the, the, the leftovers and you would prepare a meal and you would invite your friends and your family and your neighbors over and it was called a peace meal. And it was this idea that you could actually have peace with God and with each other. And so this is kind of this revolutionary new story that God is inviting man into. But just like everything that humans are involved in, we mess it up eventually. And this system of the altar and the system of sacrifice, it grows into kind of this machine that takes place. And eventually there's temples and there's priests and there's priestly courts and there's all of this stuff. And it eventually comes to this place where it's so confusing and it's so hard for people to understand. And what started as a simple concept has now grown into this complex thing. And what's even more messed up is the priests and the Sadducees, they're accumulating great wealth and position off of this system. And about 2,000 years ago, the masses are starving, not only physically, but also spiritually, while the Sadducees and the religious leaders are living and surrounded in opulence, wealth, and villas, and living the life, become an oppressive system again. It's a system based on violence and power, and fear, and confusion. So unlike today, right? See, they understood the same thing that many people understand today. If we can cause just enough fear and just enough confusion amongst the people, then we can control the people. At some points, God even calls out the system, and he says, listen, you've misunderstood it. And many times over, he calls it out and even says stuff like, it was never about the sacrifice of animals. It was never about the bloodshed. It was about people drawing near to me and being in relationship. In fact, in Hosea 6.6, 6, it says this. He says this to his people. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up from a rather obscure area in the middle of this system that's gotten so messed up from what it started with, out with thousands of years ago with Abraham and then with Moses. And he shows up into this messy system, into this messy world. He even proclaims to the religious people that, that one greater than the temple is here. And you got to understand the temple represented our connection to God. 
And he's saying, listen, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Something greater has come. In fact, listen to what he says in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them. So he's talking to the religious leaders and his disciples. Destroy this temple. So destroy the system. It's like a throwback back to Moses. It's about like a throwback to this idea of change the way you think about everything. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. I love this part of scripture. There's a little rabbit trail for us. Um, it says, this, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed. Well, how convenient that you believed after you saw him raised from the dead, right? <laughs> so if you struggle with faith, guess what? You're in great company because so did they. And after he had raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had believed, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. He's still doing something new. He's inviting us into something new. And it's like this throwback to this Abraham story about a God who's not distant, but a God who's willing to step down into the story, a God that wants to be near us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, it says this, but he, speaking of Jesus, appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appeared at the culmination of the ages. Now, how is he going to do this? Well, there's got to be a sacrifice, right? Because this is the system. You have to sacrifice something in order to know that you're at peace with the gods. And so what is God going to do? Well, God is going to act to make peace. And as the Hebrew writers tells us, once for all. And so how will he do this? Well, Jesus is going to go on a mountain. He's going to carry a cross up a hill to a place called Golgotha. Now, you may be familiar with this story. I mean, we talk about it every year at Easter, and it's this story where Jesus, that, that he's wrongly accused, and then he's put before Pilate, and he's accused and condemned by the people, and eventually they say that he has to be put to death. And so Jesus, as innocent as he was, he's going to be put to death. And so he goes to be killed, and they make him carry his own cross up on this mountain. Now, we know this place as Golgotha. Now, Golgotha is this hill, they said it was a skull-shaped hill, at the base of a much larger mountain. That mountain, the ancient world called Mount Moriah. So Jesus will carry his cross up the same hill that Abraham and Isaac once walked up all those years ago. Covered in his own blood, and the spit and saliva of other men. And he will carry that cross up the hill because once again, this story is about a God who provides. And the cross was horrible. We talk about this before. It was terrible. It was the most painful and most humiliating way to die. We hear the term excruciating. 
Excruciating literally comes out of the, the, the Greek from the cross. It means that it's so painful you, you can't even imagine anything else. And Jesus climbs that mountain to set the record straight on how far God will go. The God who hears the cries of his people, who is concerned about their suffering, and who has come down to rescue them. A God who is willing to give his son, whom he loves, because he loves his sons and daughters. Peter ends, one of my favorite speakers and writers, he says this, Christ is the ultimate example of how God enters the messiness of history to save his people. Paul will put it this way in Colossians. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with all things. Now, what's interesting, I'm teaching a little Greek. That word, all things there, you, you know what it literally translates to? All things. Which means that through Jesus, peace has been made for all things. In heaven and on earth, by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now, this is the part you need to pay attention to. Verse 21. This includes you and me, who are once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yes, it's true, you have evil thoughts and actions. We're, we're not surprised. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. There, there's this line that takes place on the cross where Jesus looks out and it says, it is finished. And, and there's been books and sermons and all kinds of things written about what does he mean by it is finished? There's all kinds of great answers that come with this, but, but maybe what's finished is what Paul's going to tell us next. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You don't have to worry about where you stand with God anymore. He brought you into his presence, and you are holy and blameless. Now, this is a big deal because I know some of you you haven't been blameless a minute in your life, have you? <laughs> but because of Jesus, you stand before him without a single fault. Because this is a God who gives. And so the first Christians, they heard this. And what they understood was this was not about something you had to do. This was about something that's already happened. This wasn't about do a bunch of steps, do this, and then God will love you. Sacrifice this, and then God will love you. Do this, and then God won't be angry with you. No, it was about something that's already been done. Now, for some of us in this room or listening to this, the pushback is, well, you don't understand who I am or what I've done. Great. The Bible says... All things. And you like to say, well, I don't know what kind of a person that I am, right? If God went through all of that, what makes you think that he would give up on you now? 
The God who gave of himself in a way that nobody else would, who gave of his son whom he loved. This is a story about Jesus who climbed a mountain to make peace for you and for me and for everybody. Jesus appeared at the culmination of the ages and climbed a mountain to make peace with all things on heaven and earth so that once and for all, everybody could know where they stood with God. And the first people who heard this, you know what they said? That sounds like good news. And it was good news then, and it's good news today for you and for me and for everybody else out there. Now, there's one more mountain that Jesus is going to climb. It's at the end of the story that we see in Matthew chapter 28. And it's a very important mountain he's going to climb, and he's going to tell us some really important things, but we don't have time to talk about it this week. Let's pray.